we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church. Y'all are going to miss that, aren't you? I know, I know I am. Listen, I have some business to tend to just at the start of this. Um, I don't know how many of you read this, but it's come to my attention that um, the kids at Wednesday night dinner are having cheeseburger in paradise and Danny Panter mac and cheese. Uh, for those of you who are new here, I'm Danny Panter, and I don't make mac and cheese. I... Never made mac and cheese, other than from the box from time to time. Actually, that rarely happens. But um, not to pass judgment on those of you who do. I, but needless to say, I, this is, I, I think this is, um, this is great. This is great, but it's not my mac and cheese. I don't know whose mac and cheese it is. But kiddos, if you have mac and cheese this week, it's going to be awesome. Just know that if it's not awesome, it's not mine. <laughs> not mine. Um, listen, if you are visiting with us, if you're new with us today, thank you so much for worshiping with us. We would love for you to let us know that you're here. And the easiest way to do that is by going to fbcsa.org connect. And you can even do that right now. I give you special permission to get on your device, but would love to know that you've worshiped with us today. And we would love to make connections with you at uh, another Time. Also, want to remind you that most of you probably pick up one of these as you come into worship. And I want you to notice that there are always updates on what's happening in the life of our church family in here. And I always want to encourage you uh, to open this up, um, read through what's going on, because a lot of these things um, might be meaningful and beneficial to you. Uh, we offer Bible studies and various programs that can encourage and enrich. You in various seasons of your life, from marriage, um, whatever. But check on that, read through that um, as you have opportunity. Um, uh, in a moment, um, you're going to uh, watch a, a video. And typically, during our last Sunday of a series, we actually have a panel up on stage, right? And you get to hear from this panel as they talk about how this series and Judges has made an impact on their life. But the video you're about to see is a teaser, a preview of a recorded panel session uh, where I got to sit with uh, Blake Coffey and uh, Megan Langdon, and we got to talk about Judges. And so I want you to watch this teaser right now. Well, welcome to our End of Reverse Series panel discussion Who's your favorite judge? <laughs> I was going to say Jephthah, of course. Yeah. Just <laughs> Everyone's favorite. <laughs> Judges is a picture of the human condition. It's a story of God as told through some extremely real people. It's just a picture of humanity and also God's kindness. And what does the church really need 
from this book. So we would love to invite you not just to watch that panel discussion, but to su subscribe to our YouTube channel. And I'll even give you permission to do that right now as well. But please tune in this week. That discussion will be available immediately following our worship time together and really hope that you uh, watch that uh, when you're able. Lastly, let me say, uh, you saw Jay Gormley in our welcome video. Uh, we have some representatives from Stitch Ministries here with us. If you're here, raise your hand. They're in the back right there. Um, Stitch is a phenomenal partner in the city doing incredible work. They're actually going to be here uh, following our time of worship. They have some information. Um, some of you have already benefited from Stitch Ministries in the past, uh, but go inquire. Talk to them about what God is doing through their ministry. We're so grateful that you're here today. All right, let's pause. Let's breathe and let's pray together. Uh, Father, this is uh, your time. Lord, we have sung songs of praise, been reminded of your incredible mercy and victory in our life through your son Jesus, through song. Um, Lord, we now pray that you help us to listen well um, and give us understanding so, Lord, that we can follow your son every day of our life as individuals and families and as your church. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. First Samuel chapter 3. Now you would think that if we were wrapping up a series in Judges that we would end with Judges, but we're not. Uh, we are going to put a capstone on this series by going to the last judge that was called into that role, not just as judge, but also as prophet in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Many of you know this story really well. So I'm going to tell a portion of this story until we get to verses 11 through 14. I'm going to invite you to stand, and then we will read those final verses together. So again, you know this story. Samuel, as a young man, was serving in the tabernacle, serving alongside Eli. He was Eli's servant, so to speak, but Samuel had an affection for the Lord. We know that he was um, asleep at night near the entrance of the tabernacle. It's a, a symbolic of his devotion to the Lord, even though he hadn't heard the voice of the Lord yet in his life. The scriptures talk about that the, the, the lamp of the Lord had not yet gone out, and even that was symbolic of the condition of the people, even the condition of the priests in the tabernacle that served the people who would come to bring offering. And we find Samuel there at night asleep when he is woken up by the Lord calling to him, and the Lord says, Samuel. Of course, Samuel as any of us would have, would have gone to the closest person that they thought would have woken them up. And in this case, obviously, it was Eli. He was accustomed to Eli asking for his help. And so he immediately, at night, went to Eli and said, Eli, have you, what do you need? Eli said, I didn't, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. So Samuel goes back to bed, and once again, the voice wakes him up. The Lord wakes him up and says, Samuel. And so he goes back to Eli. Eli says, no, go back to bed. That wasn't me. The third time, he goes back, and uh, Eli begins to realize this is not a person speaking to Samuel. This is the Lord speaking to Samuel. And so Eli says, all right, the next time that you hear the voice of the Lord, I want you to say, 
Yes, Lord, speak, your servant is listening. So Samuel goes back to sleep and he's woken up again. And this time the Lord says, Samuel, Samuel. He says his name twice. And the Lord uh, says, um, and gave him the message that he wanted to give. And now I want you to stand with me and we're going to read verses 11 and 14 together to kind of capture the end of that story. Verse 11. Here we go. All right. All right. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I'm going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. You may be seated. That's a staggering judgment, isn't it? That their sins would never be forgiven. Even Eli's lack of discipline would never be forgiven. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But this calling of Samuel and this story of Eli and his sons, Eli being the high priest and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, um, providing the priestly duties as they would help administer sacrifices as the people would come to worship. Um, you can follow the rest of these stories in chapters 1, 2, and of course now we're in 3, but the stories of Eli and his sons and Samuel really captures for us just how far the tribes of Israel have fallen. Uh, to what extent has their brokenness and rebellion and rejection fallen? And these stories of these priests and Samuel help us understand just how far they have. And so what we discover, especially if you were to go back and read chapter 2, is that not only were the cities and towns desecrated by exalting idols and altars to other gods who weren't gods at all, uh, not only were these towns had completely given themselves to worshiping these others' gods, but we find desecration happening in the tabernacle itself, which embodied um, the very presence of God. It was, to, it was to be the symbol that God is among his people, listening to their voice and their needs in prayer and making atonement for their sin. Even there, we find that his people have been completely desecrated. His place of his presence had been completely desecrated by the priests who served there. And so what were Hophni and Phinehas doing that desecrated this holy place, the tabernacle? Well, the scripture tells us a few things. I just want to mention a few. The scripture tells us that they used their position as priests to fill their own bellies, to get what they wanted, and also to satisfy their sexual urges. They used their position to take advantage of other people. Rather than leading people into worship, the scripture tells us, 
and honoring the Lord and giving to Him first, they would take portions of the people's sacrifice for themselves first before giving it to the Lord. Now, they knew the law. The law required that any sacrifice that was brought to the temple, that the the fat of the sacrifice belonged to the Lord first, and he would get first portions. And what was left over, the priests could use to sustain their needs, but not Hophni and Phinehas. As as the sacrifices would come, they they would demand that they get their portion first before making sacrifice to the Lord. It was an offense to the Lord. The scripture says they would even take advantage of of the young women who were called to serve in and around the tabernacle. In chapter 2, verse 22, it says this, Now Eli was very old, but he was aware what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance, that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. They had desecrated the tabernacle, they, they used it to fill their bellies and their desires rather than honor and glorify the Lord and nurture and help and encourage these people in their worship and making sacrifice to the Lord. Furthermore, we have Eli, the high priest who is responsible for caring for these people and caring for the tabernacle and honoring and upholding the holiness of God as it is as it's symbolized in the tabernacle. We have Eli passively warning his sons rather than taking action. Sure, the scripture tells us that Eli said, listen, sons, I know what you're doing and it's not good and you need to stop what you're doing because, uh, listen, it's, it's not a good thing to be sinning against the Lord. There's nothing left but condemnation for you. But he never took the kind of discipline and action that would remove them from continuing to desecrate the tabernacle. He just didn't have the guts to do it. And we learn why. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 29, listen to these verse, these, this verse. This is the Lord speaking through a godly man who was sent to bring judgment against them. So why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people Israel. You have become fat. That's a Hebrew word that also means heavy or weighty. It's the very same word that... Um, that is ascribed to God in his glory. God is weighty. He is heavy in his majesty and holiness. Very same word. And so what is God's judgment against Eli and his sons? You seek to glorify yourself in, in my tabernacle before glorifying me. Eli, you want to glorify your sons first, honor your sons first, and me second. And he says, Eli, you high priest of all people should know that that's not your role. That's not what you should be doing. And Eli is doing this. Even though he is blind, he's doing this with his eyes wide open, choosing his sons over his responsibility to glorify the Lord in the tabernacle and in his life. He honored his kids more than he honored the Lord. That was the indictment. Just a a quick side note. We do our children a tragic disservice when we honor them over honoring the Lord. We we could spend several sermons here. This is 
We wrestle, all of us wrestle with this. But what our kids need most of all is to see mom and dad exalt Jesus in their life. And, and we can play to schedules and busyness, and some of those are valuable and wonderful things that nurture our kids and teach them about discipline and leadership. Uh, but if they don't see us glorifying and honoring the Lord first, then we do them a great disservice. Just an aside. But what we discover in this account of Eli and his sons is the culture of idolatry among all the tribes of Israel has taken its fullest toll. It was now top to bottom. Even the priests had given themselves to serving themselves and serving other gods rather than honoring and seeking and listening to the Lord. It's, it's, it's no wonder that there are no messages from the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, and this time God hadn't revealed himself. God had not been speaking or giving people visions. It's no wonder because no one was listening. No one was seeking the Lord, save a few, i.e. Samuel's mom, Hannah, who was devoted to the Lord. But by and large, this picture of the desecration of the tabernacle was a picture of just how far all of Israel had fallen. Because even there, of all places, you would think that would have been a refuge where the presence of the Lord would have been sought after and upheld and the law would have been obeyed. But not even there. Not even there. It's much like... Um, um, our, our house, we've been in our home uh, going on three years, and um, the, the previous owners had put a fresh coat of paint all around uh, the house. It's part brick and some of it's uh, wood. And um, after being in the house a year or so, I discovered that, that some parts of that newly painted wood was rotted all on the inside. And you know how you discover that? Because when you press on it, it just kind of collapses under your hand. You've ever experienced that before? I mean, it looks, it looks the part. It looks the part. Uh, it looks like it's whole, but once you put pressure on it, it's just rotted inside. And that was the case for the priests in the tabernacle. They were going through the motions, but they were rotted all on the inside. Just as rotted as everything else among the tribes of Israel. And this is an incredible backtrack, backdrop to a story of God's undeserved mercy in the people of Israel. But as I mentioned, this chapter in 1 Samuel is also a story about a boy, a young man. And we discover in 1 Samuel chapter 1, not just any ordinary young man, but this is a miracle child. You remember Hannah was heartbroken that she was unable to have children up to this point. And during their annual pilgrimage to the tabernacle to make atoning sacrifice and to worship the Lord, she was so beside herself and heartbroken and desperate uh, that she is found at the entrance or near the entrance of the tabernacle just beside herself praying and, and asking the Lord to give her a child. In fact, Eli notices her and thinks that she's drunk. And he says, get away from here. You're drunk. No, she says, no, I, I am desperate. I'm longing to have a son. And, 
and Eli blesses her because we know that the Lord did bless her and answer her prayer. And so she conceived and had a son, and she made a commitment that when I have my firstborn son, I'm going to give him completely and wholly to the Lord, which was not uncustomary during that time to give and dedicate our firstborn to the Lord. But she meant it absolutely, literally. She said, I'm not going to cut his hair. I'm going to dedicate him, similar to Samson, by the way, in a Nazarite vow. I'm not going to cut his hair, but I'm going to give him unto the service of the Lord. And so when he was ready to go, when he was weaned, she took this little toddler uh, back to Shiloh and said, Eli, here's my son, and I am dedicating him to the service of the Lord. And so here we have this little boy, Samuel, this miracle child who is dedicated to serve the Lord, to assist Eli the high priest, to help around the tabernacle as a quasi-priest. He even had, remember how last week we talked about that ephod, that religious spiritual garment? Well, he got to wear one as a little boy, this quasi-little priest assisting Eli, and probably Hophni and Phinehas as well. But he grew up in the tabernacle to serve and minister to the Lord. And what we find in the story of Samuel, even in all of chapter 3 and back to chapter 2, is that this really is a story of contrast between this boy and our young man and Eli and his sons. Samuel is an adopted son. And the scriptures would tell us that he would grow up and become great. Whereas the only great thing that Hophni and Phinehas, his true biological sons, can attain is their great sin. Samuel would minister to the Lord before Eli. His sons would desecrate the tabernacle. Samuel would hear the voice of the Lord while Eli and his sons were blind and unable to hear the voice of the Lord. Eli and his sons would be condemned to die. Samuel would bring new life, new light, and new leadership to Israel. It's a story of contrasts. It's a story of God calling a brand new prophet. Someone who would both hear and speak God's words to his people. Not since Moses, get this, not since Moses have we seen God call someone into this prophetic role like it's done in chapter 3. When God encounters Moses, he says, Moses... Moses, and gives him his task. In the same way, we find God with Samuel. Samuel, Samuel. And so we know by just comparing even those two that God is up to something significant in Samuel's life. In the midst of this decadent, dark, idolatrous, broken Israel, God is doing something brand new. He is ushering in a new day, new beginnings, a new exodus, so to speak, through this young man that God was calling as a prophet. And what is, what is Samuel's first words from the Lord? What are his first words from the Lord to, uh, to Eli? 
Well, we read them. I'm going to read them again. This was Samuel's first prophetic word. I'm about to do something shocking, do a shocking thing in Israel. I'm going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. Here's the shocking thing that God's talking about. Verse 14, God says, so I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never, will never be forgiven by sacrifice or offerings. That's a staggering verse. Did y'all capture that the first time you read it? They would never be forgiven. And not just Eli and his sons, but that whole generation. They would die early and in poverty. The final, the final line of Phineas is snuffed out in Solomon's reign, by the way. Not Phineas. Well, Eli, Phineas. But that's his first judgment. But what we, what we learn about Samuel's life, even with that hard word, which by the way was a, a second witness against Phineas, our Eli, Phineas, and Hophni. The first one is in chapter 2 by another godly man that comes. And so we find Samuel with his prophetic word as the second witness or testimony against um, Eli and his sons before judgment is rendered. And it is rendered. But what do we learn about Samuel's life even after that, this new prophet, this new light, new beginning? In verse 19, it says, as Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him, and everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. And all Israel from Dan in the north of Beersheba in the south knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and gave messages to Samuel there at the tabernacle. Remember, back early on in chapter 3, that light was about to go out. And here we have the light burning bright as the Lord continues to appear to Samuel at Shiloh. Verse 4, um, four verse 1, and Samuel's words went out to all the people of Israel. This story is about a boy, this miracle child who would bring a new season, a new day, a new exodus for the people of Israel that they were desperate for. Samuel's stories, Samuel's story is a staggering one. It's a new season in God's story of redemption for his people. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Let me read this. His faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is His faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is Samuel's life and God's leadership and calling in his life is, is God's mercy beginning afresh in the people of Israel through this young man. The people need Samuel, but the reality is that they didn't deserve him. They deserved to go the way of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. They deserved unforgiveness. 
the book of Judges and, and even this chapter has really helped us, I believe, I hope, to really see ourselves for who we are. It's already been said multiple times um, that we are a broken people, but it's more than that. It's not just a broken people. It's a people that have rebelled and rejected God over and over and over again. And, and I hope that that Judges has helped you see that. And it, we are so broken and so rebellious that even the core, the tabernacle of our own lives has been desecrated by our own choices. And time and time again, not once, time and time again, we have desecrated our own lives. Judges for us hopefully has been a mirror. And while they needed Samuel, they certainly didn't deserve him for those reasons. And really, to me, that's what's so staggering. That's what's most staggering about this account. What's most staggering about God's mercy. When we read the account of Eli and his sons, if we're honest, when we read that God says, I will withhold forgiveness for them, we acknowledge that they get what they got what they deserved, right? They got every bit of what they deserved. They deserve nothing less than being wiped out because of their high-handed, eyes-wide-open kind of sin. I'm convinced that when we rightly consider the magnitude of God's grace and mercy in our own life, even this side of Jesus, it's beyond staggering because on its face, it's unjust. It doesn't add up. There's not a part of my life or yours or ours collectively that is worthy of God's grace and mercy. God is completely just in his condemnation of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. And God would be completely just into wiping me out too. Or you. That's what's so staggering about his grace and mercy. How can you do that? How can you just pass over that sin? Well, the reality is he hasn't, has he, passed over that sin. That's not what God has done. I mean, the truth is left with Samuel or anyone else, no matter how great the prophet or the prophetic voice, left to them alone. God would be unjust in passing over that sin. He would be unjust in letting me go or you go. We need far more than a Samuel, don't we? We need far more than the last judge of Israel. We need far more than a prophet. We need a savior. We need someone who could do what Samuel ultimately could not do. He, by the grace of God, he led the people of Israel through a brand new season and ushered in the monarchy. And God worked through Samuel to move him and move the people up to the place where Jesus is introduced into the world as, as prophet and as king and as judge and as king and as savior. 
sacrifice. It's in Jesus that we find justice in God's mercy and grace towards us. Romans chapter 3 says, God in his foreknowledge passed over, passed over former sins so that in Jesus he would be the justifier of those sins, yours and mine. It's in Christ that we find the justice and love of God. It's in Jesus that we find justice and the overflow of God's mercy and grace towards us. Grace and mercy cannot happen, cannot happen without Jesus. Without Jesus. And so here we find that miracle child, that son of God, born of a virgin, who not only received God's word, but was the word. And not only was he prophet and priest, but he was the very sacrifice for our sins. You and I have inherited, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have inherited staggering grace and mercy in your life. There is nothing that we have done or said that merits the kind of mercy and grace that we have received, ever. And the only reason we do is because God sent his son that we can know real forgiveness, real mercy, and be restored in a right relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we're grateful for your son, Jesus. I mean, let's be honest. We can't say that enough. We can't feel that enough. You sent the perfect sacrifice to restore us, to forgive us. And Lord, we acknowledge as your people that we are not worthy of that mercy and grace. Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit that we would daily be in awe of that grace and mercy in our life. That we would not take it for granted. But that we'd live in it. We'd swim in it. We would take steps by it. Lord, that we do more than just feed our own bellies and our own desires. But Lord, that whether we eat or drink, we would glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people say amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.